Good evening. First, I want to welcome everybody here tonight, whether it's in person or virtual. Uh, we're glad that you're here to worship with us. Also, want to say that I very much appreciate the opportunity, every opportunity I have to be able to preach. Uh, I imagine some were probably expecting someone else to, uh, other than me to be up here again this week. Uh, but I do, again, appreciate every opportunity that I have to preach. Uh, also thankful to the eldership for allowing me to do so. Uh, I hate it that it's under these circumstances, though, with Doug having to be quarantined and isolated from being here, physically being here with us. I know it must be driving him crazy to be just a few steps away, but I have been able to be here. But we want to keep them in our prayers. Uh, like I said last week, these seem to be just crazy times with this COVID stuff going on. I also don't think very many would have, every, have ever thought that they would have to worship with us over the internet or on Facebook. But given the unique times that we're experiencing, we have to do what's best for, for each of us individually and as a family to keep us safe. I know there are several in the congregation that have medical issues or comp that have compromised immune systems due to like I said, medical conditions or medications that they take. Uh, I know I've got a hematologist, an oncologist, and a rheumatologist, and all kinds of ontologists that say that we have to be, don't need to be paranoid, but we do have to be safe. And we have to be cautious and vigilant and make our personal decisions that are best for, for each one of us. One thing I, I do want to say to those that have medical conditions, which prohibit you from being here, is just to know that through our faith and through our diligence, you know, we'll all get through this together. There were about three weeks there that I was among those that had to attend virtually uh, on Facebook because of some of my medication changes and I was very appreciative to the eldership for allowing the use of the internet and the use of Facebook in order for those of us that were stuck at home to be able to attend virtually and worship. Also appreciative to those like Kirk and Eric and Doug and anyone involved, everyone involved in putting that together so we're able to do it. I don't think you can fully appreciate it until you're physically unable to be here and have the strong desire to still be here in worship service with our Lord and God, as well as having the desire to still be here in fellowship with the congregation. So again, I want to welcome everybody here tonight as we worship our Lord God and Savior. Tonight my sermon's a little different than those that I've done in the past. This sermon was kind of put together about a year ago and it's been about 90% complete and just stuck back in a corner in case, of, in case it was ever needed and I had the opportunity to deliver it. But I chose to put the, together this sermon because of all the misinformation 
that I noticed was bombarding us today, whether it's from some of these TV personalities that call themselves preachers or evangelists, or from some, all the misinformation that we get over the, the internet, it seems like there are all kinds of, and these people that want us to believe that the reason we experience trials in our lives is because we haven't sent these people money or bought their book or listened to their podcasts. That all you have to do is send them this love offering and then I'll be blessed and suddenly find money in my mailbox. And it troubles me because there are people who are desiring to hear God's word and are also in dire need of hearing God's word. And they're failing due to these false teachers. It troubles me because I can't comprehend how somebody would use the word of God in order to run some form of scam or whatever against some poor soul just to get him to part with his money. But it's not just these people that got me into the, to write this sermon. It's also the ones who promote what I can only name as an attitude of spiritual compromise. That it seems that as a society, we're slowly eroding away from faithful preaching and slowly adopting the, this philosophy of spiritual compromise. So exactly what is an example of spiritual compromise? Well, it's how as we as a society have slowly accepted the denial of creationism, a factual six day, 24 hour creation. Or how as a society, it's no longer acceptable to believe in a global flood. Or how as society wants us to believe that the account of Adam and Eve that it's some form of myth or fairy tale instead of an actual biblical account. How society wants us to believe that none of this is supported by science and therefore no one can take it seriously. I mean, if it's not based in science, then how could it be? I've, I've been told by some that science and common sense just can't support the first three chapters of Genesis. Or when someone says, seriously, you, you really can't actually believe that given the science we have today that you actually believe that. But if you disagree with someone because you don't accept their explanation of how the earth is billions of years old, they tend to just react and put you down because you won't believe their, science, their scientific fact and that you'd rather accept biblical explanation or biblical scripture. We're bombarded with things like this every day and it erodes people's faith. But more dangerously, it slowly promotes this spiritual compromise Years ago, I read a story about Abraham Lincoln when he was in his early days just as a new lawyer. Lincoln strongly discouraged litigation, but instead preferred and he encouraged compromise and settlement before it actually led to a court case. But the story referenced how Mr. Lincoln was approached by a client 
who wanted a debtor to be prosecuted criminally and put in jail. So as Mr. Lincoln discussed the, the specifics of this new case with his client, he discovered that the debtor only owed a small amount, something like $50. When Mr. Lincoln asked this client why he was so adamant for criminal prosecution, the man replied he wanted justice. He wanted justice in this case, that it was a matter of principle and not the amount owed. Abraham Lincoln was unable to persuade the man to avoid criminal litigation. So he took the case for a fee of something like $100 and went to find the person who owed this man money. After Mr. Lincoln found the, the debtor and discussed the debt that he owed, Mr. Lincoln had compassion for the man and really didn't want to have to have the man put in jail for such a small amount. So he devised a compromise. He took and split the fee of $100, gave 50 of it to the man to pay his debt in full, and then pocketed the other 50 for not having to do much work. So his new client was happy, he got his money, the debtor was happy because he didn't have to go to jail. And Mr. Lincoln was happy because he didn't have to basically do anything or go to court. So there are situations where compromise can be a good thing. But there are other times when, where compromise is a bad thing. It seems like today, they're like in politics, compromise is something that's totally unheard of. Politicians would rather cut off their nose than to engage in compromise with the opposite party. But compromise is a bad thing when a person has to compromise their morals just for the sake of conforming to someone else's views or ideas. Situations like this can actually cause a person to sin. It, invol it involves going against, if it involves going against God's will simply for the convenience of compromise. It can also apply to a church or a congregation if the action of compromise causes them to go against God's will. Found an interesting account of compromise on the internet, which I think provides a good explanation. Sometime around 1974, there was a huge portion of land in the northern part of Australia that belonged to the Aborigines, and they were very superstitious people. But this land, this area, was covered with these giant green ants. Well, the Aborigines believed that these ants, these big green ants, were sacred descendants of their pagan gods. But this, this large mining company discovered huge deposits of uranium in the land. So they approached the Aborigines about purchasing the land so that they could ex get the uh, uranium. But the Aborigines wouldn't budge. If you destroy the land of our sacred green ants, our gods will pronounce a curse upon us and we will have years and years of drought and famine. Well, they did finally sell that land to that mining company. Do you know what changed their mind? $8.3 million. When asked what changed their minds 
Concerning their gods, the Aborigines chief simply said, they may be gods, but for 8.3 million, they can find another place to live. This leads to the question about our convictions. Are our convictions for sale? I know some within the denominational world who have sold out, it seems like. What about the examples in the Bible of, Smyr of Ephesus or Smyrna? Or what about the church at Pergamos, the compromising church in Revelation chapter 2, starting with verse 12? But it got me to thinking, is compromise a problem within the religious world today? And if so, just how bad is the problem? When we were, Dad and I were eating lunch Saturday when David called and asked if I had a sermon ready to preach tonight. And I have to admit, I immediately thought of 1 Peter 3.15, which says, always be ready to give a defense to anyone who asks for a reason for the hope that is in you. And so when he asked if I had the sermon prepared, all I could, I just basically replugged you know, replied that. And now I know not everyone can get up here and deliver a sermon, and that's, that's not really what we're talking about. Um, it doesn't make one right or wrong or anyone better or someone else than someone else because we're all blessed with certain talents and none of which is better than the other. And just like my last sermon, the last sermon last week on 1 Corinthians, the church at Corinth had gotten to the point where they were arguing, arguing over who was better or who had the better talents or the better gifts, just exactly who was better. That was at the point that Paul was making that each are blessed with certain talents, none of which are better than the other that they needed to stop acting like children and grow up and be more concerned with following God's will. But just like in 1 Peter 3.15, we are always to be ready to give a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that is in you. Or 2 Timothy 4.2, preach the word, be prepared in season and out of season, correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. And in Philippians 1.6 says, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel, we are always to be ready to give that defense. But what about in our daily lives? How do we act? Or what about what we teach? Or even what about what we preach? Do we give that defense? Or are we concerned that we might actually hurt somebody's feelings if we told them the truth? Now, that's not the point here at the church at Shoto. Here, we, I think Shoto does a fantastic job at preaching the gospel. And again, that's not my point. But when I listen to other sermons or I talk to other people from other churches, I get the opinion that there are some out there in the world that are afraid to give that defense, that they're afraid to preach the gospel, 
a case in point, I was talking to a few people from another congregation on this subject and it on different subjects on, on the Bible and it turned to preaching and preaching styles. I said it seemed like we didn't preach sermons anymore like we used to. I mean, preacher, you know, preaching sermons that were like hellfire brimstone, repent now sermons like we used to hear. And that's when this person told me that preaching like that just doesn't work anymore. That actually it ran off more people than it brought in. That preaching like that just wasn't acceptable these days. I thought, really? It made me think of, of 2 Timothy 4.2. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Convince, rebuke, resort, exhort with all long suffering and teaching. But not just verse 2, but continuing with verses 3 and 4. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires. Because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers, and they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. But as the world drifted so far that we've come to a time where society can't endure sound doctrine and sound preaching. I mean, if you watch the news anymore, it seems like in politics, if someone divulges their faith publicly, that the media that turns on them and just viciously attacks those people for their faith, and it's not just the media, a person can, can declare in the place that they work their homosexuality and be praised as though it was some great act of valor to come out and express it. But if someone were to declare their faith in God at that same workplace, they would probably get fired for violating some human resources code or rule. Has society drifted that far? that we can't express our faith in God in public, at our jobs, or even in schools. Some we still can, but in other areas and in larger cities, you can't, not without retribution. This sin of compromise, it seems to have infected even the denominational world. It's not, they're not immune to it. And these mega churches, and actually, a lot of this started with these mega churches. And it's, I'll explain, it's, it's, it's pretty simple. When did it become all right for a church to be more concerned with, with church growth than it was for their spiritual growth of its members? Every now and then I like to watch a couple of these that are on TV uh, just to see what they actually preach on, what subjects they choose, and if they actually preach God's word. You'd be surprised. One I try to watch that comes on on late Sunday nights, or I don't know if it's a replay or what, but it seems like all they preach is give them money and then you'll be blessed. That if you're having problems, send them money. 
and somehow that's going to fix your problems. Basically, it sounds like if you're not sending them money, then you're not going to be blessed by God. Then, during that same time slot, somewhere you're just after it, there's this guy that comes on professing to have holy water and from somewhere. And if you buy it and drink it, that somehow you'll be blessed by God. And on top of that, you'll get a new car, a new boat, a new job, or whatever it is that you've been waiting for. All if you buy his holy water and drink it. I'm not kidding. No, it's on like channel two or something like that late night. Uh, but if you look beyond the smoke and mirrors of these people, then you'll see that that's exactly, that's what they're saying. I mean, they can dress it up, but an old expression, a pig is still a pig even if you put lipstick on it. Is that what the world has come to? That people will actually believe a guy that's selling holy water versus sound preaching. After that, there's usually a guy that telling me, you know, telling everybody that you need to send him money, or in his words, a love offering. And that's what it takes to be blessed by God. I'm like, really? Is sound doctrine, is this sound doctrine that Paul was telling about, Timothy about, that there will come a time that they won't endure sound doctrine? In 2 Timothy 4 3, and that they'll develop, the world will develop itching ears. If you watch some of these TV preachers, and it does seem that the world has reached a point where they would, people would rather listen to entertainment preachers, if that's what you want to call them, who will tickle their ears instead of preaching sound doctrine. It's, somehow it seems like we've entered into a truth war. Take, for instance, the book of Genesis and the subject of origins. The, sub, the account of God creating the world and that he created the world in six days, six 24-hour days. I think the worst thing that could that happened was the advent or the of Darwin's theory of evolution. I know that I know preachers that would rather cut cut their arm off than to preach of a six-day creation. But just like we saw last week, man would rather look for the scientific explanation. Man would rather look for that educated explanation. Man wants to search out the wisdom of mankind instead of looking to God's word for the answers. Because they think God's word is foolishness when compared to the wisdom of man. 
even a lot of the evangelical schools of higher learning. Many are willing to reinterpret Genesis so that it can accommodate evolutionary theory instead of scriptural fact. I can't count the, recount the number of times I've heard someone say, you mean you, you don't seriously think the universe was created in less than a billion years, do you? What, what does the Bible have to say? What's the timeline that the Bible gives us? Am I to believe the wisdom of man? I think I'd choose the foolishness of God. Am I to believe these undisputable scientific facts? Or am I going to believe God's word? I think I'd choose God's word. I refuse to think that God would have, would have Moses record that account of Adam if it weren't true. And not just in the Old Testament either. Many people want to account, just push that off as that that's the Old Testament. That's not, that's not applicable. Even in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul, he writes of Adam in 1 Corinthians 15, 22, for as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. He also writes in 1 Corinthians 15, 45, and so it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being, and the last Adam became a life a life-giving spirit. Again, in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 13 through 14, for Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman, being deceived, fell into transgression. The first three chapters of Genesis is just as true, is just as important, scripture as the rest of the Bible. Paul tells us again, 2 Timothy 3.16, that all scripture is given by the inspiration of God. It's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. Paul writes there, all scripture. He doesn't write part of the scripture, some of the scripture, all scripture. You know, if we allow Satan to undermine any part, any part of the Bible, let alone just the first three chapters of Genesis, but any part, who says he can't or hasn't or is trying to undermine the entire book. Everything that scripture teaches about sin, everything script, scripture teaches about redemption, it all assumes the literal truth 
of all of the Bible, of all scripture. Remember, Christ himself said in Matthew 24, 35, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. Sinful compromise, allowing the adoption of man's wisdom or man's science over the word of God. I can think of several issues with compromise like this. It elevates science to be equal with the authority of scripture, which can't happen. It allows a faulty hermeneutic to be adopted. It robs God of the glory due to him. It undermines the glory of the gospel. And it even undermines the credibility of the Bible. Several years ago, someone sent me following scripture. And it's just become one of my favorite scriptures of the Bible. It's 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 2 through 7. You therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus, in the things that you have heard from me among many witnesses, commit these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. It goes on, you therefore must endure hardship as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. No one engaged in warfare entangles himself with the affairs of this life that he may please him who enlisted him as a soldier. And also, if anyone competes in athletics, he is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. The hardworking farmer must be first to partake of the crops. Consider what I say. And may the Lord give you understanding in all things. You know, when Paul tells Timothy in, in verse 2, and the things that you have heard from me among many witnesses, commit these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. That, that just tells it right there. But way too many times when this is quoted, people forget to include the rest of that, especially verses three through seven, that we must endure hardship as a good soldier of Jesus Christ, that no one engaged in warfare entangles himself with the affairs of this life, that he may please him who enlisted him as a soldier. And also if anyone competes in athletics, he is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. The hard-working farmer must be first to partake of the crops. Consider what I say, and may the Lord give you understanding in all things. In verse 3, that we must endure hardship as a good soldier in Jesus, of Jesus Christ. And it goes on to explain in terms that I think most of us could relate to. 
that no one engaged in warfare entangles himself with the affairs of this life, that he may please him who enlisted him as a soldier. If that one doesn't apply, or give then in verse five, and also if anyone competes in athletics, he's not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. And finally, verse six of a hardworking farmer that the hard-working farmer must be first to partake of the crops. But what are we supposed to commit to these faithful men? What are we to preach? Paul tells us specifically what we are supposed to preach just a few chapters later. In 2 Timothy 4, 2, preach the word in season and out of season, convince, rebuke, exhort with all long-suffering and teaching. Preach the word. In Steve's sermon this morning, he covered that we're not only to preach the word, but not adding anything else, and that we're not to accept anything that goes beyond the word. Revelation 22:18. for I testify to everyone who hears the words of prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to these things, God will add to him the plagues that are written in this book. We're to only accept only the gospel that we are given in the Bible. Galatians 1:8. but even if we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you than that what we have preached to you, let him be accursed. But if even we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you, I don't know about you, if we had an angel from heaven come down, it'd be kind of hard not to listen. I think I would pay attention, but we're, we're not even supposed to believe that just what they have, the gospel that they have given us. Basically, no compromise. Only the gospel, only the gospel contained within the Bible. I take that to include the wisdom of a man that we are to avoid. Or the opinion of mankind that we're to avoid. Even the, the science of mankind we're to avoid when it contradicts the word of God. You know, we just saw in one of last week's sermon this wisdom of man 1 Corinthians 1, 18 through 22. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world 
For since in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God, it pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For Jews request a sign, and the Greeks seek after wisdom. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. You know, we look at that in verse 22, where it says the Jews request a sign, and the Greeks seek to seek after wisdom. You know, during that time, the Greeks prided themselves on science and wisdom. They really thought they had the market cornered on that. But my question tonight, are we like the Greeks in verse 22? For the Jews request a sign and the Greeks seek after wisdom. I want to make one last point tonight in the sermon be yours. Last week I brought up this fact about the scribes and the Pharisees and how most of the scribes they were of the sect, the Pharisee sect. Not all Pharisees were scribes and not all scribes were Pharisees but the majority of scribes were Pharisees. Now the scribes had the task of copying scripture verbatim down to the last period, comma, everything. And a lot of that was committed to memory. I mean, they didn't have printing presses. They didn't have printers back then. So someone had to hand copy each and every copy of scripture that they had back then. And this was the job of the scribes. So basically, they knew what scripture said. And I made this point last week. If they knew exactly what scripture said, how did they get it so wrong? How did they, they go so far beyond what scripture said that it turned into a sinful thing? But even more confusing to me is if the scribes knew what, exactly what scripture said about the coming Christ, why didn't they just make a list of everything that was in the scripture that they needed to watch for so that they would have known that Jesus fulfilled every one of those facts and every one of those prophecies, everything the prophets had foretold concerning the coming of the Christ. If the prophets, if they foretold or prophesied exactly what to look for, why didn't the scribes, like I said, just make this checklist of who the coming Savior would be? They knew. They knew exactly what to look for. And they still got it wrong. Was it the sinful pride of mankind that had crept in? 
Or was it the sinful compromise of God's word that crept in, or a combination of both? Did they compromise their beliefs so they could be more conformed, more to what man wanted to look for instead of what God, God had told them to look for? The Jews wanted an earthly king. They wanted someone who would invoke revenge, basically, on their captors. They wanted revenge. They wanted an earthly king. They were looking for what they wanted instead of what God wanted or what God intended. That's how they got it wrong. Sinful compromise. It slowly kept crept in. And instead of looking for what had been prophesied, they were looking for what they wanted. For what they wanted in a savior instead of what God had promised. And all the time, they had exactly what would save them right in front of them. But isn't that exactly where we are today? I mean, we have right here, we have exactly what will save us. We have exactly what God's promised will save us. We have everything written down, exactly what we need to do. I firmly believe we, we live in a very blessed time to be able to have, I mean, a personal copy in our hands for our own use, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, anytime we want. To have in our hands the exact promises God made telling us what will save us. But to close, my question to you is, which will you believe? The opinion and wisdom of man or the word of God. You know, we have that opportunity here tonight. Every chance we get, we always want to extend that opportunity to those in need. Whether it's the need for the prayers of the church or if it's the need for baptism, that someone's made that decision to put Christ on in baptism, to wash away their sins. One thing I, I, I always stress, we all stumble, we all fall short. Romans 3.23 says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Don't be distracted by the sinful compromise of man's opinion that distracts you from the glory of God, the glory that only can be found in God's word. Again, we have what will save us. All we have to do is read it, obey it, 
if you have needs of the prayers of the church, and again, if someone has made that decision to put Christ on in baptism, we want you to know that we're only a step away, that that opportunity is always available. If you have any of those needs, we ask you please come now as we stand and sing. <laughs>